This is the fourth time I've uh, stood before you and preached after a mass shooting in this country. And so, of course, today, names like Tucson and Virginia Tech and four years ago, uh, Knoxville, a Unitarian Church, targeted as well. So I offer today's message about the movie that was scheduled, but really as the first of a two-part series that will conclude next week when I preach on The Dark Knight Rises, which, as we all know, is the movie that was showing when the massacre in Aurora, Colorado happened. So what will help me out a little bit today to be able to get through this is if we start with a prayer and end with a prayer. So would you join your heart with mine in prayer, please? God of open and broken hearts. May we allow our hearts to keep open. May we allow our hearts to let in grief and let out love and let out grief and let in love. May we be a part, not just today, but going forward. Of changing this culture. A culture that too often desecrates and dehumanizes through acts of violence. May we celebrate that which gives life. And directly and still lovingly condemn. That which desecrates life. May we keep our hearts open. May we grow a heart as wide as the world. Amen. So, to start today, I want to tell you about the worst therapist that I ever had. <laughs> this is at a time in my life in which I really, really needed a good therapist. It was 18 years ago when I was struggling with OCD and daily anxiety, panic attacks, and acute depression. And this therapist who I was seeing was no help to me at all because he would regularly fall asleep while I was talking. (laughs) Just kind of not off, (laughs) wake himself up. And this was not a time in my life in which I was laughing very much at all about anything at all. And I got one of my few laughs when one day after he started to nod off, I just quit talking and just watched him. And my watch. And I think I counted out 44 seconds before he finally recognized that I had stopped talking. He did give me one gift. One final gift. Clearly the therapeutic relationship wasn't working out. It didn't last all that long. But he gave me one gift. Which is that I was so wound into my anxiety. So overcome regularly by my anxiety at this point in my life 18 years ago. That he led me through one day a meditation. Grounded in what's called transcendental meditation. It was a progressive movement through my body. Imagining points of light radiating in and radiating out from my body. Starting in my feet, moving up to my head. And then finally imagining my head kind of as this beacon of light beaming out into the universe. For that moment, I experienced a sense of peace and relief that I hadn't in months. The only issue was that it didn't last, and it wasn't a ticket into my life. It wasn't a way to enter back in. It was merely a momentary escape. It didn't follow me out the door. It was a way of getting away, not getting in touch. And so fast forward to 18 years later, now, 
As many of you know, I regularly integrate mindfulness, both the practice and the teaching of it, into my life and into my ministry here at Wellsprings. And in mindfulness, the school of mindfulness in which I am trained, one of the core practices, very often the first practice, is a progressive body scan. And there's kind of a debate within this mindfulness school that I practice in. Do you start at the feet and go up to the head, or do you start at the head and go down to the feet? I've tried it both ways, but I have a very, very now discerned commitment to starting at the head and progressively going down the body all the way to the feet. I do this because of my own tendency and many of our tendencies to live our lives in our heads as if we were disembodied creatures of thought completely disconnected from the rest of ourselves. I remember my first yoga teacher had one practice that he came back and back and back to with me all the time. He would take his finger very gently and very directly and place it on the crown of my head right here. (laughs) Because I was always like, you know, I was always looking out with my head. I was always wanting to scan the environment. It's almost as if without choosing it, I didn't want to descend down into my bodily experience. That's what today's movie is about, the descendants. It is about the wisdom of descending. It is about the quote-unquote head of a household. And in case we didn't get that head and power part correct, that guy's name is Matt King. Matt King, who is descended in the movie from Hawaiian royalty and also from Anglo missionaries. He holds Millions of dollars of land in trust. He is also a successful lawyer. And so seemingly he would maybe have it all together. But he is also a completely disconnected husband and an absentee father and estranged from his family. And when we first meet him, we meet him in a voiceover. And we get to know that his estranged wife is in a coma. And not only is she in a coma, but she is not, we learn soon thereafter, going to survive for too much longer. She is going to die. We meet in time also his two daughters, 10 and 17, who are completely out of control. And then also we learn before too much more of the movie elapses that Matt's wife had been having an affair and had been planning to leave him. Now, like so many of this filmmaker's movies, Alexander Payne, if maybe you've seen Sideways or Election or about Schmidt, so much of what happens in his movies is that the creative distance or the drama comes from that space between who the main character thinks they are and what they think they know and what is really going on in their lives. And very often in his other movies, that's an ironic joke on the main character, but not in this movie. Here it is the cause, the traversing of that path, that distance between who Matt thinks he is and what he thinks he knows and what his life is actually really going on. When he traverses that distance, he grows and he heals. It's not a joke, although there's funny moments in the movie, but it's really a sacred path because his path is down, descending, from the high places, the kingly places, the enthroned places, to actually get in touch with his life. Our culture has all kinds of messages about if we want to transcend or transform our pain, our struggle, our suffering, a lot of it is about up and away. 
I remember the kind of little uh, uh, positive uh, power, positive thinking posters that were like in my orthodontist office when I was growing up. I don't know if they still do this for those of you who have kids who are going to orthodontia. Um, but it was like, you know, a cat like crawling up to get the cookies or get the milk or someone summoning a mountain and a like triumphant. I did it. Now, I've got no problem with ascendance as someone who has literally climbed mountains. But too often in our culture, there is this simplistic, dualistic assumption up, good, down, bad. This movie, The Descendants, is all about transcending and transforming through descending, going down, moving down into our lives, not moving up, up and away, but down and in. I mean, the words and images all throughout this movie are about learning to descend and to drop down and to move beyond the superficial or the up, up and away images. I mean, we hear it right in the first voiceover when Matt King, who lives a life of luxury in many ways, who is successful in many ways, who lives in this beautiful place called Hawaii and all the people he says in this voiceover on the mainland, say, oh, my God, it's paradise there. And then the filmmaker very skillfully moves from all the images of all the ritziness and all the natural beauty to the down and out people who also live in Hawaii as well. The skid rows and the people who are suffering and the people who are sick. And so Matt King, understanding that the image is not reality, says, fuck paradise. His cousins. He runs into all these cousins all throughout the movie who have a really vested stake in this land, which he is supposed to sell. And they want to know what choice he's going to make. And by the way, they just maybe take a moment to ask and then move on about his wife who happens to be in a coma. And they say things like, she's a tough gal. She's going to pull through. And then they move right on to asking about the land. She's a tough gal. She's going to pull through. They go right to that place, up, up and away. Cliche, making themselves comfortable, that superficial level. And as a result, they do not connect. They cannot connect with Matt. It's a story as old as the book of Job because the friends will not drop down into the experience with him. The eldest daughter, Alex, the first time we meet her, she seems to be uh, maybe a good candidate when we first know her drinking and drugging. She seems to be a good candidate for uh, Girls Gone Wild, one of those videos maybe in the future. But she's not. She's very wise. She hears when she first learns of her mom's death that it's not just a coma and she's not going to get better. She's swimming in a pool and she drops down below the surface and starts sobbing in the water. It's not because she wants to hide. It's that actually Alex becomes Matt's guide and confidant and mentor. And she is leading the way without saying anything. The younger daughter, Scotty, who just seems to be kind of a wreck. She's a bully and she curses all the time like a sailor and she's 10 years old. When the family ignores her, as they do throughout most of the movie, and just try and manage her. She goes out poolside and she starts throwing all the deck chairs into the pool. And yes, that is acting out. But again, because this is not a simplistic movie, I think that's another cue the filmmakers are giving us. She wants to dive into. She wants to know the truth of her life, too. She wants to know what's going on and she will act out until she gets to know. 
This movie is about going into the depths, going into the places that we do not understand, and very often it's the places that we fear. We don't like to go there. I don't like to go there. But when our lives are there, either we go there or in many ways we stop living because we just go numb. In that first voiceover, Matt mentions it is 23 days, 23 days, he says, since his wife has been in a coma. Again, I don't think that's an accident. 23 days, the 23rd Psalm, perhaps the most famous piece of prayerful poetry in the Western world. I have said it more times than I can count for funerals and memorial services and those famous words. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. And I've said that so many times that sometimes it can feel rote. But I got to tell you, there's one word I would love to change. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Take out the thou. Because I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Thou art with me. That says connect, drop down into the valley, into the shadow, into the dark places, into the death places, connect, and then perhaps be blessed. From one of the archetypal stories of dropping down and touching the ground, it is the story of the moments right before the Buddha's awakening, the moment when he is approached by Mara, who is the divine personification in the Buddhist tradition of illusion. And basically, Mara says to Buddha, what are you doing here? This isn't worth that much. What are you expending all this energy on trying to awaken for? Kind of wash your hands. Don't work so hard. And the Buddha doesn't say anything. The Buddha simply does this. Touches the ground with his hand. As if to answer Mara, I am here. I walk upon this earth. I am connected to all who are living and breathing and being. And simply because I am alive and will drop down into my experience, I, too, have the power to awaken, the power to be enlightened, as all of us do. First, connect, then be blessed. In a very key scene in the movie, we see Matt barefoot. And it's not just a reference to the cover of Abbey Road. Barefoot. It reminded me of that beautiful passage in the burning bush passage in the book of Exodus in the Hebrew scriptures where God, as the ancient Israelites understood their experience with God to be, said, take off your sandals, Moses. The place where you are walking is holy ground. Now, the Hebrew scriptures, I grew up Jewish, I know this, they are filled with all kinds of prescriptions that don't make sense anymore. But this one does. Because what they were saying is if you really want to touch the divine, if you really want to know where the holy is, feel it. Make yourselves vulnerable. Get in touch. Go down to the ground. Feel the sand beneath your toes. I love that Thich Nhat Hanh from the Buddhist tradition, one of my favorite teachers, his tradition doesn't do a lot of theologizing. They don't do a lot of talk about God. Gives me my favorite teaching about God who says that many of us 
in pursuing our notion, head, our notion of God, we keep ourselves from touching the God of love and non-fear and wisdom. The touching and the feeling and the integrating is so much more powerful than the thinking and can change us so much more. And perhaps that is why so many of us are stuck in the place of thinking and wanting to argue who's right and who's wrong. Rather than dropping down to touch the ground and feel what is there. One of our core values at Wellsprings talk about living a life of integrity. Deep listening, possessing the humility and the vulnerability necessary so we are able to make positive change. Deep listening means putting our ear to the ground of our lives. Putting our ear all the way down to the ground, sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically, but really getting in touch with what is going on. And that is hard work. Those of you who do it regularly know it's hard work. The only thing harder is not doing it. Because what that pays off in is numbness and disconnection and anger and wondering why we never heal. So ear to the ground, then we can change. The key to change, very often we are told, is learning to let go. Sometimes we'll even ask each other, are you letting that go? I'm trying to let that go. Have you let that go? No, I can't really let it go. Are you trying to let it go? I can't. Can you help me let it go? Can you take it from me? That's maybe how George Carlin would have done a letting go. <laughs> but I got to tell you, letting go has been just another kind of BS thing sometimes, the way we talk about it. Because letting go is like a have-to thing, a pushing away kind of thing, an up, up, and away kind of thing. Have you let it go? If it's that meaningful, I'm not sure we should let it go. I think first, before any release comes, we change a word. And it's the hymn that we heard. Let it be. Let it be. One of the things I love in this movie is that when Scotty, the 10-year-old acting out, marginalized, managed, forgotten about child, is finally told the truth of her mother's impending death. All the drama goes away. All the acting out goes away. And she becomes sad. Simple, profound sadness. How often do we allow ourselves to be sad? Just to grieve, just to mourn, just to connect and drop down into our experience. And how often do we choose the other path? Not because we're bad people, but because we're afraid probably. The other path of taking a drink or taking a drug or straying from our commitments or getting angry or shaming ourselves or getting angry or shaming another person. All to avoid the profound truth that sometimes it is simply okay to be sad and not just okay, but good to be sad. When we're injured, maybe we fear sadness because it's weakness or that's what our culture tells us. But our culture is very wrong about many things and our culture is wrong that sadness is weakness. 
one of my favorite bands, a band called The Gaslight Anthem. They're coming out with a new album on Tuesday, and I'm not getting a cut by telling you about it. It's called Handwritten. It's going to be awesome. They combine, like, punk rock and Bruce Springsteen. I think they're just freaking incredible. One of their first songs, they talk about a character whose life is kind of coming apart, and the line they refrain over and over again is, can't stay still in the pain. To learn to stay still in our pain. Not the kind of pain of someone punching you in the nose. Move away from that kind of pain, but the kind of pain that we feel inward because we try to get away from ourselves. Definitionally, we can't. We can only go numb to ourselves. Letting it be practice is learning to stay still and open and drop down into our lives. For some of us, this is the path of meditation. For some of us, it is the path of yoga. For some of us, it is the path of all of these and especially this of learning to open ourselves in an unredacted, unedited way with someone we really love who we know will tell us the truth. Not in a you should or you should let it go or you must, but will reflect back honestly to us our lives. Not a yes man or a no woman, but simply someone who will reflect our own lives back to us honestly. That is learning to let it be and not presenting ego to the world, but presenting our actual lives. That is spiritual friendship. And what we can find if we actually practice letting be and recognizing that let it be when it's over, it will tell us. We won't tell let it be. That in fact, the letting it go might come naturally. Might just be a grace that rises up from within us, not a pushing away, but an offering back to life. To not move past our sadness quickly. Could we stay there? Could we stay in it? I got to tell you, this is all I'm really thinking about this morning when I think of Aurora, Colorado. Staying with the sadness. Staying with the grief. It's barely been even two days since the atrocity. And yet so many of us want to move past it so quickly. So many of the regular scripts are being read and written. I'm not saying there isn't change that we should do in our laws, but any change that comes about in our laws that is not written or aspired to within our hearts will be change in our laws that we can't reach. To not move past our sadness too quickly is to maybe open space for the many of us who are left-wing and right-wing who are laid low right now by sadness, by the atrocity. Not the tragedy. It's not a tragedy. No one in that theater did anything to bring that on themselves. That's tragedy. The atrocity in Aurora, if we can build from that place of our common, shared, wounded humanity, then maybe we can open up space to begin to address all the things that are bedeviling our culture. But you know what? That means we can't just automatically preach to the choir or preach to our side. And it's really hard, i got to tell you, to fundraise when you're not outraged in this culture, especially in this political environment. But by not staying in our sadness, I wonder if we are missing the unscripted, unrehearsed solutions that are waiting for us to start to really change a culture that celebrates violence and celebrates dehumanization of each other and celebrates 
what hurts. And then get shocked when what hurts, hurts so much. The fruits of letting it be is a real full acceptance of our lives. We hear this in the movie. When Matt leans in to say goodbye to his dying wife, and they didn't have a chance to make things all good. She didn't have a chance to explain to him. He didn't have a chance to explain to her. They didn't get a chance to say to each other, I'm sorry, which perhaps might lead us who are sitting with some really unsettled stuff in our own emotional lives to say, wow, maybe I ought to work on that today before it gets too late where I don't have a chance. And he leans in and he kisses her. This is a dying body. Goodbye, my love, my friend, my pain, my joy. All those things wrapped up together. I have to tell you, when it comes to Aurora, Colorado, the one thing I am making myself do, because I don't want to move through past through the grief or the shock or the pain, is I'm watching all of those stories about those 12 who have died. I want to let their lives be. Their lives weren't finished. And the difficult path of grieving that all the people who love them will have to face is that sometimes we leave things unfinished with our loved ones. Some of the people who died, they left behind people who were angry at them. They left behind people who had unfinished business with them. But to let our grief be whether we see it on TV or whether it's so intimate that it touches our hearts every day, is to actually be able to do what Matt does when he says goodbye. He accepts his wife for who she was. And he accepts his children for who they are. And he accepts himself for who he is as well. It does not mean he understands it. It does not mean that he comprehends it. If we are waiting for the moment when we understand our lives to accept our lives, we will be waiting a very, very long time. Very often, understanding is a fruit of letting it be. I love that this parallel story in the movie of his land, like his life, he relates to with these words. He says, we didn't do anything to own this land. It was entrusted to us. Acceptance is not weakness. Acceptance is not passivity. Acceptance is strength and wisdom. Because in that we learn to accept the whole inheritance of our lives, not just the stuff we love and not just the wonderful stuff about us, but to accept the wholeness of our inheritance in this life. And it broadens our heart and it broadens our vision and it broadens our ability to simply be here. To descend into the depths makes me think of this, makes me think of this image, the image of the iceberg. Remember what sunk the Titanic? It wasn't what they saw. It was their arrogance of not recognizing that it laid below the surface. That's where most of the iceberg actually lives. 
to trust our own lives to descend into the depths means that we may not even ever get to the bottom of the iceberg. But we know that it's there. And we know that our inheritance for good or for ill helps to inform the life that we live now. This is the path of real and radical acceptance. I had an unexpected experience of this last week. Some of you have been to the Korean War Memorial in Washington, D.C. I had never been before, and I think I had been resisting it. I've been to the Vietnam Memorial many, many times. But the Korean War Memorial has actual human figures in it. As beautiful as the Vietnam Memorial is, it's those names. The Korean War Memorial has figures in it. And all of a sudden, I had this sense when my wife and I were there on vacation the week before last that I was looking at my father as a young man. See, my dad for years told, to call the lie seems to judge him, so I'll just say not the full truth of his life, which is that he was drafted but never saw action in Korea until one day in an opening many years ago, he told me very silently, very quickly, and then moved on that he had fought and could not tell me anything more about his experience. My dad is many of the millions of people, men and women, scarred by their experience of war. And so I found myself looking at these figures of the young men and seeing my dad there and starting to cry. I may never know what my dad experienced because my dad may never be able to speak of the experience. I hope he can for the sake of his own healing. There's a lot of stuff below the iceberg, in the iceberg, below the surface of our lives. I may not know my dad's story entirely, but in that moment of recognizing and seeing his depths and knowing something was there, I felt closer to him, and it helped me accept him and love him more, even if there's a part of him that I will never fully know. We inherit all kinds of things that we don't deserve, for good and for ill. The question is less why. Why may be unanswerable for many of us. The question is how. How do we relate to our inheritance for good and for ill? How do we descend down into the truth, the holy and hidden heart of our lives so that we are really able to touch what is there? Kathleen Norris is a writer I like a lot and also a poet. And in a bit of poetic overstatement, she says this. She says she's never met a successful person who could write a poem. Now, Kathleen Norris herself is a successful person. She says successful people can't write a poem. Because sometimes the cost of being successful is that when we're pursuing success, we won't let ourselves get close to the ground. We won't let ourselves kneel down, see life 
from the ground level, the humus level, the human level, the humility level. What I love about this movie and what I love about what it has to teach us, especially this week, is that Matt King was already successful, but he was so unhappy. He gets something more and better than a successful life. He gets a healed life. He gets a loving life. Because he hops off his throne and down to the ground. I hope that today, for all of us, whatever our inheritance, whatever our pain, whatever our struggle, whatever our joy, is that we will drop down into our experience, not run away. And we'll put our ear to the ground and our feet on the ground and allow our hearts to touch the ground and allow our hearts to be touched by this life, as painful as it sometimes is. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Eyes wide, heart open, hands reaching out to touch, feet firmly planted in the midst of our lives. May we receive life and spirit in this way, trusting the connections that even death cannot ever cut away from us. Trusting that either bigger than sorrow is the love of life. To say this is one thing, to do it and to trust it is another. May we allow ourselves to descend, to touch the ground, to kiss this good, holy, and sometimes very painful earth and to allow ourselves to receive the kiss of life back. Amen.